Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast, rated one of the top 10 most useful sustainable finance podcasts by Green Finance Guide. Guernsey is one of the jurisdictions leading the way in green and sustainable finance and as part of this podcast series, we'll be speaking to and learning from some of the leading global figures in the field. My name's Rosie Alsop, I'm Communications Director at We Are Guernsey, the promotional agency for Guernsey's finance industry. And today I'm delighted to be speaking with uh, Emily Farrowman, who's partner uh, and ESG and sustainability lead at Baringa, and Bella McKenzie, who's a manager within the ESG and sustainability team at Baringa. And today we'll be focusing on how Guernsey can support a just transition towards net zero. So Guernsey's recently been working with Emily, Bella and the Baringa team to research and report on the ways in which the financial services industry in Guernsey can support a just transition and also what's needed on the global stage to move towards a more sustainable future. And in today's edition, we'll be discussing the concept of a just transition and actions that the finance industry can take now to affect change. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Rosie. We're delighted to be here and thanks for inviting us. Oh, it's my pleasure. So why don't we kick off with uh, introducing you to our listeners. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and your background and your careers to date? And then maybe also a little bit about Baringa and possibly uh, its status as a B corporation. Um, Emily, would you like to start? Love to. Hi. So hi, everyone, and thanks for uh, listening to us. So I'm Emily Faramond, and I lead ESG and sustainability and financial services across banking, insurance, wealth and asset management and private equity. And um, it's fair to say I'm totally obsessed and obsessive about sustainability and always have been. For me, I decided to pivot my career in from financial services consulting about six years ago when I enrolled to complete a master's in sustainability at Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership. And at the time, I guess I thought at some point, sustainability and climate change would become an important topic for FIs. Um, I hadn't expected that that occurred much more quickly than I'd anticipated, um, but I'm delighted to, 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 to have the role that I do. Um, for some, I appreciate it might feel like a slightly counterintuitive role, FIs and sustainability. But for me, I genuinely believe that we can drive the most sustainable change through the appropriate allocation of capital. Thanks, Emily. And Bella? Yeah, so I'm Bella McKenzie. I sit within our ESG and sustainability team in financial services at Baringa. I also became obsessed with climate change a number of years ago, really when I was at university and I watched Leonardo DiCaprio's film, The 11th Hour, I sort of immediately went and switched my diet and sort of joined a load of societies and, and switched from driving my banged up old Peugeot to cycling everywhere and, and all of that stuff. So sustainability has always been super important to me, both personally and professionally. It's really when I found my feet um, at Baringa that I found my vocation in a career in sustainability at Baringa. I really do agree with Emily around the role of finance. I feel passionately that where we are now, uh, what I'd say is about the 11th, 12th or maybe the 13th hour, <laughs> given the challenge that, that we have around the slow pace of change around policy decisions, it's really finance and private companies that hold the key to accelerating a just transition at the pace that we need to. 
um, and that's why kind of, you know, supporting clients in financial services around uh, their sustainability goals and working within a company like Ringer is so important to us and who we are as a B corporation. That's why sort of, you know, I'm just delighted to have found the career where I have. That's lovely. I can feel the enthusiasm. <laughs> you both. So you mentioned B Corporation. Um, Emily, can you talk a little bit around that and what that means? Yeah, it means a lot to us, actually, at Beringa, and it's been an interesting journey. So I think we have historically um, won a lot of awards around our, our people proposition and a great place to work. That, that's been the case kind of the entirety that the entire time Beringa has been a business and and we've been part of those awards and and leading on those for for a number, you know quite a long time i think it's fair to say we're truly a purpose led organisation we are absolutely delighted to have received b corp status i can't pretend it was an easy straightforward or quick process but neither should it be frankly um, i think the status really demonstrates we're aligned to the highest possible environmental and social standards when it comes to managing our own business and we're delighted to be the first large management consultancy to achieve this. Well, congratulations. So net zero is a concept that most people will be aware of, but um, maybe you could explain, Emily, what a just transition entails uh, and the importance of it in a global sense, as well as um, what it means in, for, for Guernsey. Yeah, and um, thank you for this great question, right? Just transition, essentially, if we look at how it's defined, um, is around greening the economy in a way that's fair and inclusive, or as inclusive as it can be to everyone concerned. And that's about creating decent work and opportunities and leaving no one behind. So what does that mean? Really, it means, I think, I think the way we've talked about it in Baringa um, is we talk about a little bit permission to transition. So we can't get to net zero without collaboration and innovation and bringing everyone on the journey with us. So we need to do that from emerging markets through to disadvantaged social groups, supporting brown sectors in becoming green. To bring this to life a little, I guess people don't realise and I think, you know, some of the interesting conversations with NGOs can be, well, hang on, we just need to stop funding all this type of activity and we, you know, we need to just use renewable energy and that's absolutely correct. However, for many countries in the world, from the US to India, we have entire towns who are totally dependent upon the jobs provided from a coal mine or an oil refinery. We can't just close those facilities and make those people unemployed. We need to find other meaningful work for them to do to enable them to support their families and contribute to their local communities. I think you know, transitioning away from carbon intensive activities presents all the social and political tensions associated with moving from one economic model to another. But on the flip side, there are huge opportunities available to create decent sustainable work opportunities through developing certain types of infrastructure and reskilling people. There's a lot of noise about job losses, particularly negativity around jobs in the fossil fuel sector and you know 2.7 million jobs where are they going to go i think we also need to look at the opportunities so the world economic forum estimates that 10.3 million net new jobs are needed globally by 2030 in clean energy and i think really the, to wrap that up the just transition then is just about how do we get from where we are today 
to where we want to be without you know, disadvantaging the minimum amount of people, but also driving through on that net zero pathway. I think that's so right. And that's such a compelling statistic as well, that uh, the opportunity that the just transition uh, presents to us. So, Emily, you've worked with some of the world's largest banks and investment companies. How important do you believe the financial services industries are to achieving that just transition? I think they're absolutely critical, frankly. And, And if we look at climate change and the climate agenda and where we were probably when I started and having these conversations, you know, a number of years ago, we've started to see some systemic change in climate driven simply because there's been some regulation in in place that have meant FIs have needed to consider climate in some of the decisions that they make and how climate change will impact their balance sheet. So I think we need to just extend that even further. They can play an even more important role around a just transition, ensuring that lending and lending investment decisions that they make consider not only environmental impacts, but also social impact. I think without them playing this role, we are likely to create a pathway to net zero, which you will have heard of termed as disorderly. So that's, well, we get there. Okay, but we create a lot of social and economic challenges along the way. And that's not going to be optimal for anyone. Absolutely. So at uh, COP26 in November last year, GFANS mobilised a range of financial services firms to join the race to zero in what's been described as a watershed moment. Um, Emily, can you explain the significance of this to the just transition and maybe tell me a little bit about what you thought of the outcomes of COP26 as well? Thank you, Rosie. Great, great question. And yeah, de- I mean, delighted to give you my point of view on that. So I think the, the race to net zero is really designed by Mark Carney and a number of others to push leading firms to increase their ambition around the pace at which they're driving towards achieving net zero. And that means they're focused on a number of critical pro- uh, topics. So phasing out coal financing and addressing some of the implications of the IEA's net zero analysis the energy system, but also how that transition is going to impact other sectors. And that's particularly important here um, around driving the removal of some fossil fuel subsidies, but also supporting a just transition aligned to those those examples I was talking about earlier. Um, They announced a new net zero aligned financing in developing countries in an emerging markets, and also really committing to best efforts around eliminating agricultural deforestation impacts um, in companies' investment portfolios and financing activity by 2025. And a lot of that is actually quite aligned to some of the commitments then we saw in COP26, um, which I have to be honest, I feel a little bit mixed about in terms of what we hoped to achieve going into COP26 and where we actually landed. It feels like We've kept the goals somewhat alive around keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees. However, as you'll know, we don't yet have the commitment, the policies or the action in place to actually make that happen. Currently, the NDC, so the nationally defined contributions, add up to 2.4 degrees. And that equally assumes that everyone's on track and meeting their commitments. And I guess that's against a backdrop of um, knowing that we are currently at 1.5 degrees of, of global warming. Yes, the things they've decided or committed to do is they've agreed to look again 
uh, ready for COP26. So each country is going to come back, hopefully, with a more robust, more resilient, more aggressive plan. Um, albeit, that's going to be a bit of a challenge. And I suspect we might see some people walk back on their commitment. So the Ukraine, for example, actually means that the situation in the short term could look a little bit worse. We did, however, see, and again, this is reversed a little bit, we saw a nail in the coffin for coal, but with the challenges around Ukraine, we've seen some countries such as Germany reverse some of those commitments. Um, so 20 governments commit to end fossil fuel funding for new projects overseas, and also 100 countries commit to cut methane. We also saw a framework created around carbon offsetting, which we could have another podcast to discuss how appropriate <laughs> we think carbon offsetting is, and I suggest we don't get into it now. But, but one thing I will say on carbon offsetting is if we can create a carbon market that works, then we can start to incentivize positive climate behaviours, such as, you know, allowing and enabling farmers to plant more trees and hedgerows. We also saw over 100 country, countries promise to end deforestation and protect indigenous indigenous, sorry, people's rights. Um, and there was a large piece around climate justice. So as you know, we in the developing countries have been merrily guzzling up utilising fossil fuels for a long time. We're now saying to some of the developing countries, well, we don't want you to do that, but actually we need to support them in doing that. And we've made some commitments, but I don't think we are currently supporting them in the developing, the developed um economies in the way we committed to do. So I guess to wrap that up, it feels like there's still a lot to do. We look forward with hope that there's a greater level of ambition in COP27. Absolutely. That's a brilliant assessment. Thank you um, for, for setting this scene on the global need to transition to a sustainable economy. Um, now, let's talk about the research report, which um, I would just like to say is an absolutely brilliant read and su such a, a, a comprehensive piece of work. And I, I can't wait until we can release it for everybody else to see as well. So the report uh, specifically addresses the question, how can Guernsey support a just transition to net zero? Um, Bella, I'd like to ask you, what do you see as being the key differential between a net zero strategy and a just transition strategy? Sure, thank you, Rosie, and, and thank you for that lovely feedback. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I really enjoyed reading it. <laughs> um, so essentially, I mean, a net zero strategy is predominantly focused on emissions reductions and the actions that firms can take to reduce what we call their, their portfolio emissions or, or their financed emissions facilitated through their lending, investing or underwriting activities. So it's shifting the balance of that activity on their portfolios from, if you like, browner assets or activities towards the greener, focusing primarily on that one sort of metric, if you like, of, of the emissions, the carbon emissions. By comparison, a just transition strategy is one that really understands all of those points Emily made earlier around the criticality of the, the social dimension towards actually achieving a, a successful transition to net zero with limited you know, negative impact on, on local social societies and economies. And places that really at the core of its strategy as opposed to as an afterthought. And I guess what that means 
what that really means is firstly kind of integrating both those those wider social and economic objectives into your strategy alongside the emissions reductions objective right from the offset so that as you sort of work your way through all the really crunchy difficult decisions that will be required as part of this whole net zero transition challenge that we face you're you're essentially balancing the negative impacts of moving away from facilitating browner activities with creating positive social and economic opportunities at the same time and that and that could mean for example you know, using your influence as a finance provider, engaging and incentivizing companies to invest in both the changes that are required to reduce their carbon emissions at base, as well as the skills transfer programs that are required to reskill their workforce. Um, and, and really measuring their progress against both of these factors when you're evaluating the performance of a company as part of your sort of portfolio allocation decisions. So that you're really sort of balancing those what we call the ESG environmental social and governance factors right the way through secondly and, and also really importantly it, it also means recognizing again linked to a lot of the things that Emily was saying earlier that there are different pathways to net zero for different sectors and regions based on their local infrastructure and capacity to transition so as we know you know developed markets I think as Emily put it have been guzzling away um, the, you know fossil fuels for a lot longer and, and as, as a result we're a lot more advanced economically and therefore, therefore have a lot more capacity to act quickly and to decarbonize quickly so our targets and the targets that we place on companies that we invest in in, in developed market have got to be a lot tougher and tighter around emissions reduction than they will be in emerging markets where they have still got to have the opportunity to develop and build their local econ economy and infrastructure and, and you know build more access to power for for lots of local communities that still don't actually have that access yet and that means in the short term that they will still need to use fossil fuels in order to do so just by nature of the fact of the of the local infrastructure so really what it means is is you know a just transition is taking the time to do the detailed work to understand those different pathways and establish differentiated strategies based on those differing social and economic conditions that's what it is in a nutshell <laughs> <laughs> that's a really great way of framing it thank you for um for that explanation bella um, can you also touch on the achievements to date of Guernsey and the progress that's being made around sustainable finance? Yeah, sure. So I'd say that the two key areas where Guernsey is really demonstrating its leadership around sustainable finance are around, firstly, innovation and, and secondly, collaboration and engagement, both of which are, are super critical to net zero. So good examples of innovation around the Guernsey Green Fund regime, which is the world's first regulated green fund green fund label which currently is applied to around total of i think 13 funds that have that label now that are channeling investment into sustainable projects focusing on a range of activities from solar and wind power to forestry and sustainable food production agriculture lots of great um, initiatives that currently have that guernsey green fund label that's also um, alongside that you've got the Guernsey Sustainable Stock Exchange, 
which is aligned to the UN Sustainable Stock Exchange Initiative. And again, it just provides a place for global investors to go to look for listings that have passed a certain sustainability criteria. Um, building on that, there's also open consultations around the potential development of a natural capital fund regime, which would again just provide yet another example of product innovation to support green or, or sort of sustainable finance objectives. Then I guess in terms of collaboration and engagement, there's, you know, Guernsey's got a really strong network of like local industry associations. You've got the Guernsey Green Finance Initiative. Guernsey's really, you know, leveraged these um, assets, if you like, as to, to take a lead in developing industry first frameworks and guidance. You know, examples of that are sort of the ESG framework for insurers, the green private equity principles. There's an absolute raft of wonderful literature that the Guernsey has published that really helps advise and guide um, both the local industry and the wider international finance industry around some of these new concepts around green and sustainable finance and that's really just through through the the strong networking collaboration that has that has happened across the industry so and those things are going to be super important as we look forward to to finding the new solutions to the new challenges posed by the just transition <laughs> thank you it's always nice to hear it from people who aren't in guernsey to uh, and to sort of have it reflected back i mean obviously we, you know we're very proud of what we do but that's that's a, a, a lovely assessment so thank you for that um, looking forward, in the report, you've outlined many areas of opportunity for Guernsey. Um, Bella, if you had to pick one or two, what would you see as some of the areas of the greatest opportunity for Guernsey to build on this momentum uh, and catalyse action towards the just transition? Yeah, um, so I think, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about risk around the transition. The transition presents a really really big opportunity as well um we, we talk about that a lot in in the report the transition you know it presents a really big opportunity to create new financial structures and products as well as the sort of new analytical tools and services and enablers that will be required to support and enable those products so kind of building on those two points i just mentioned around like the, the guernsey's strong track record for innovation and strong tradition for collaboration and engagement Guernsey's really well placed to to bring stakeholders together and develop these new solutions really quickly and one specific area of opportunity that you will focus on quite a lot in the report um, could be for Guernsey to develop for example, a just transition funds label to facilitate the flow of investment into companies that have both environmental and social objectives at their core and that pass really strong tests and have really strong evidence of meeting the required criteria across that holistic set of environmental, social and governance themes. Guernsey's already shown that it's got a really strong supportive regulator that's very much engaged with the green agenda with the green agenda. So you know you've got a, a good ground uh, groundwork there to be responsive to ESG trends. Um, and to build on your reputation as a strong, stable jurisdiction to act as, if you like, as the good governor to help facilitate a, a just and orderly transition via this activity to create the conditions, the enabling conditions within the finance sector. 
I think, uh, well, hopefully it's the, the, the guys and girls at the GFSC are listening to this and uh, <laughs> I'm feeling very proud of, of your kind words. Thank you for that. Emily, on the flip side of that, um, how can Guernsey continue to mitigate the risks that are posed by the climate crisis? For example, you know, some of the dangers of greenwashing um, that we should continue to look out for. Yeah, and, you know, the topic greenwashing comes up again and again. I think we've seen a lot in the media recently specifically on it. Um, we feel there's a lot of inconsistency and lack of transparency around the word sustainability, ESG, branded financial products. And I think that raises concerns that practice is open to abuse. So we've seen a massive growth in the market. That's amazing. And it is starting to direct capital flows, as we talked about earlier. But a general lack of understanding, I think, and, and some of the detail around some of the frameworks as to how you assess and measure some of these products means that we're seeing actually increased focus from the regulators globally. But actually, I think that's great. In terms of then how are you going to mitigate the risks, I think the key thing is around credibility and transparency, and that is absolutely critical when addressing the risks presented um, around greenwashing in particular. So, so that sounds really simple, right? But essentially, if you're saying it's green or transition finance, make sure you can evidence that you've assessed it, you've looked at the credibility of any net zero strategy, the targets, the journeys, as well as understanding the social impacts of that net zero strategy. I think this is important because we're really starting to see increasing levels of litigation across the globe. I won't name names of the people who've fallen foul of this, but <laughs> it's a global big brand, frankly. Um, and, and we're seeing the NGOs as well as small family offices, um, challenging firms on the green status and the robustness of the claims that they're making on products. I also think it's really positive that we are seeing the regulators starting to step in set standards around greenwashing and we have things like the eu taxonomy which is really supportive we'll see the the green taxonomy fsdr however i really think there's more for the regulator to do to support in giving greater guidance and making that clearer around really how assets are being classified and, and how you're able to demonstrate that you aren't driving greenwashing in the market that's really really important so we've spoken more generally on uh, the Guernsey finance industry, but specific industries are likely to have their own impact and outlooks on this issue. Um, I'd like to ask you how specific industries are facing uh, the issue of just transition. Bella, maybe you could touch on the key challenges and opportunities associated with the just transition and, and the funds industry. Yeah, sure. And I, and I would like to say, though, that there are there's also a lot of commonality in the challenges and opportunities um, across a lot of sectors. So you, so you mm -hmm. might sort of hear some common themes here. Um, the challenges for the funders industry are, you know, around the typical things we hear a lot about is sort of either, you know, we, we don't have customer demand and we have to be client led. You know, there's a mismatch between De demand from customers and the availability of products on the other end of things, challenges of the data, inconsistency with the data, some of the points that Emily was talking about there around lack of common definitions around some of these products, mm -hmm. um, all of those things. 
And I think, you know, they're, they're very real challenges. And, and, you know, some of the things that Emily talked about with the regulation will start to unlock some of those challenges, particularly the sustainability disclosure regulation will start to improve the data, will start to improve understanding and, and in, you know, it starts to create a virtuous cycle of, you know, create having a positive impact on customer demand once there's a better availability of information, all those things. So I think the challenges are the challenges will work themselves out the opportunities is the thing that we need to be really focusing on as that you know the funds industry has got such a crucial role to play in enabling a just transition given its role and influence on behalf of global investors across you know all of asset allocation decisions aggregating and publishing fund data shareholder action and voting using their voting rights engaging and influencing across the whole value chain of customers and clients through to portfolio companies through to data providers and so on um, so they've got such an important role to play in the funds industry and as we covered already you know huge opportunities reign around the investment opportunity around transition finance i mean that the estimates like vary wildly from anything from 125 trillion dollars to 350 trillion dollars required to get to net zero depending on which source of methodology you use and those estimates typically around getting to net zero not getting to net zero in a just and sustainable way so the so by that uh, definition, the sums will be even greater. What no one debates, though, is that there's a massive scale of financing needed and that the majority of this will, will have to come from private capital. And actually, much of this will come will be associated with the kinds of asset classes that are really common within the Guernsey funds industry. So, you know, private equity and venture capital, for example, really big within Guernsey, have a, a really critical role to, to play in this decade specifically to support those investments into the new and emerging frontier technologies that are currently only at their earlier stages of development that will be absolutely critical when we get to the point of 2050 you know the things that we will need in 2040s and 2050s are either in their absolute infancy today or, or probably haven't even been thought of yet um, so those types of investments are really critical as well as infrastructure and property funds, another asset class that's really common in Guernsey funds industry, you know, very critical. Buildings represent around 20% of our emissions in the UK, around 15% of our CO2 emissions globally. Um, so there's a huge amount of investment that will be needed to both retrofit our enormous um, landscape of existing properties and buildings, as well as funnel into massive, you know, property development opportunities around the sort of cutting edge of, of net zero property design so there's absolutely loads of investment opportunities there for the Guernsey funds industry to pursue <laughs> so with massive generational wealth transfer expected along with increasing interest from younger generations for sustainable investments Bella how important is client demand and what can be done to increase viability of investment in the just transition Yes, so so there's a big role. There's a there's a hot topic at the moment around sort of generational wealth transfer. I was, I was listening to another podcast about this very topic this morning, actually. Um, <laughs> the you know the baby boomer generation holds wealth 
estimated to be somewhere in the regions of 30 to 40 trillion dollars, much of which is set to transfer to their younger offspring in the sort of millennial and Gen Z, Gen X, Gen Z, etc. generations over the coming decades. Um, and those are the, the younger generations are the, the ones that really have, you know, sustainability at the core of their objectives. They're, they're sort of cho choosing by a number of different indices and, and research studies to use their kind of power, um, uh, you know, voting with their wallets and so on. And also in, increasingly in, in, in their investment decisions to, to put sort of sustainability factors front and center of their decision making processes. So, you know, green and sustainable investing is becoming more and more important to these younger generations, hence developing solutions to suit their needs will become increasingly important and, pre and it presents a really big opportunity for a just transition. That includes both sustainably, sustainably branded products that we've been talking about today, mm -hmm. but it also really, really importantly means actually just mainstreaming of sustainability into the way we manage investments across that the whole of the, the rest of our investments. So non, not sustainably branded products, but just everything else as well. So ESG or, R, or RI, which we call, which we mean responsible investment integration, is is a really hot topic in the investment industry at large today, because that that demand is growing and is set to grow exponentially going forwards. Unfortunately, at the moment there is a little bit of a mismatch. I think I was alluding to this earlier between the the sort of increasing level of demand in the market for sustainable products or sustainable integration. And then the availability of products and opportunities to match that demand and the ability of investment advisors and trustees to both understand the ESG factors and the data and how you measure it and value it and so on. And then communicate and match that with the demand, the new and growing demands of their investors. And, and this is really actually particularly challenging in the more sort of private segments within the market where the data is less publicly available was because they're not subject to so much uh, to such strong disclosure requirements so I guess you know within Guernsey there's a there's an opportunity here for trustees and advisors to recognize and, and to capitalize on these movements these broader sort of macro movements um, and use that as an opportunity to upskill themselves to be able to cater to those new demands of their client base and to sort of improve that matching between client demands and product sets and investment opportunities in the, in the market, as well as using their role and influence to engage with um, these investor groups with, you know, anything from the younger generations to high net worth clients and, and beneficiaries and help them to understand the longer term risks and impacts associated with their investments and integrate these into their investment objectives and then use that to then go up go forth and proactively engage with asset managers to help to really understand how they deliver on these objectives and and also to encourage them to do more where required so you know client demand going back to your question like client demand is important it presents an important it's a, it presents a very real opportunity to see this growing client demand more can be done to match that demand with availability of products and there's a big opportunity there for the sort of specialist advisors 
connect within Guernsey to lean into that and provide that sort of matching and service around you know sustainability advice to these to these um, investor groups. Absolutely. So let's move on to the insurance industry with recent publications and announcements from the London market. We're now starting to see some real momentum building around sustainable insurance. Um, Bella, can you talk a little bit around the risks and the opportunities associated with uh, insurance in Guernsey and how it can manage these in lines with the goals of a just transition? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So so insurance is, is absolutely critical in, a, in a, an increasingly, as we know, sort of high risk world um, that we that we live within. So, you know, in its core role, insurers provide resilience, you know, supporting businesses, communities, individuals to to build back and recover from loss events. A really great example of, of Guernsey's leading role in sustainable insurance solutions, which does just that, is the, um, the, the Danish Red Cross catastrophe bond, which is the world's first catastrophe bond to cover pure volcanic eruption risk, which was brought to market using one of Guernsey's um, innovative incorporated cell structures and also listed on ties that Guernsey's sustainable stock exchange that I talked about earlier. So that's a really great example of an insurance solution that provides kind of loss mitigation for very, very severe potential humanitarian risks associated with these volcanoes and the amount of economic and social and financial destruction that is um, a result of volcanic eruptions. Um, and I think, you know, building on from that, the, the opportunities for the industry going forward are are huge you know momentum certainly building in the insurance industry specifically we've seen a number of recent publications last year and this year that are providing additional sort of advice and guidance to the insurance industry to help sort of catalyze this movement towards sustainable insurance which is just sort of getting getting going if you like and it's a little bit further behind than some of the other areas like investment and asset management that started a few years ago but that momentum is really starting to build in the insurance sector and um you know the unit principles for sustainable insurance is a really good example of an industry initiative um led by the un but partnered with the the industry sector uh, the insurance sector at large where they've um collaborated to publish a guide around sustainable insurance there's also a lot of materials coming from the london market lloyd's has published a guides around integrating ESG into underwriting processes so there's opportunities there to to sort of take that guidance and then apply that locally to to the sectors in Guernsey you know what these guides tell us is in essence that some of the key actions for insurers to support a just transition and to sort of mitigate the risks around transition are really not too dissimilar from to the other sectors that we've talked about. So it's around, you know, the, what we've covered a few times around assessing all of those environmental, social and governance factors across underwriting portfolios and really integrating that into sort of risk analytics and pricing models and so on. And this is the one where we, we often get the most pushback from insurers because essentially you know it's, it's what insurers have always done you know actuaries their role is risk analytics um and that's absolutely true and they have some of the best risk analytic tools available in you know across the industry but i guess it's around taking that that amazing capability they already have and then expanding that 
to use it on a more strategic basis to perform that that kind of advanced risk analytics, but across a more strategic on a more strategic footing across an entire business model and product line, rather than just on individual policies and expanding that on a 20 or 30 time year horizon rather than perhaps an annual or or a, a, a couple of yearly cycle as per the lifetime of the policy so it's you know taking that groundwork expanding it to include all of the e s and g factors and looking out across a longer time horizon and then continuing to to use all that analysis to en enhance risk and pricing models with those wider factors integrated thereby helping them to insurers to start to identify ways to help bridge the protection gap so, so Lloyd has suggested that just a 1% increase in insurance coverage could reduce the global cost of climate-related disasters to taxpayers and governments by as much as 22%. And, you know, taking that forward then, it's really important from a just transition perspective. One of the key risks for the insurance sector is that you'll hear about, you know, discussed at length, not only insurance, but particularly in insurance, is the, the stranded asset risk. And by, by stranded asset risk, we essentially mean the risk that in the pursuit of net zero, brown assets, which might be, for example, a, you know, coal-fired power station, will become essentially a stranded asset that is uninsurable, uninvestable, thereby opening up a whole load of unprotected risk around that asset and then the local workforce or economy dependent on it. So what ensuring a just transition means is that these types of brown assets will still need insurance to provide loss mitigation and risk transfer while the asset is transitioning, for example, being you know, repurposed to, to, to a new business model, a low carbon energy source, or maybe just being decommissioned. The onus here is on insurers to understand that required timeline for transitioning these assets and adapting their policies and pricing accordingly, but whilst also doing that, using their role and influence to engage with the insured, with the owners of that asset, their, their policyholders, their clients, to understand that timeline and actually providing proactive support to them in transitioning a lot along it. So what I mean, in some, to summarize what I mean, is it's not about a blunt timeline or a timeline used as a blunt instrument for, um, you know, exiting certain contracts, but rather using that timeline as an engagement tool to help educate and inform clients and enable them to develop their own transition plans. Finally, I think the other thing that's a really big opportunity and really crucial for the for the sector is around uh, engagement and, you know, Guernsey's industry associations and networks um, are another key sort of opportunity for the insurance sector to help collaborate and you know to 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 work with the wider industry to improve that practical advice and guidance around some of these complex challenges around integrating ESG and just transition into underwriting processes. It's one of the areas where there's there's been the least work done to date and where there's the most opportunity to make a lot of progress. Plenty to build on then. Um, now finally we're very proud of our work so far with Guernsey Green Finance. That's Guernsey's initiative for greening the financial system. And uh, September marks our third Sustainable Finance Week, and we will be delighted that you'll be attending as a panellist. 
Um, now, there's there's not an awful lot of time between now and then, but Emily, what do you think Guernsey could do next in the run up to Sustainable Finance Week? So, firstly, you know, congratulations on the work that you've done so far, and I think it's it's absolutely right and appropriate that you're really proud of that. So, <laughs> thank you. Um, and I think the, the the first point is obviously read the report. <laughs> Everyone should read the report. Everyone. <laughs> Read the report, and I just think really engage with the topic. It's a fast-moving topic. Sustainability has, I think, is definitely maturing, um, and people's views on what's green versus brown has been subject to change recently, in particular, particularly in the context of, of the challenges we see in the Ukraine. I think we need to all be quite thoughtful about that and make sure that you've assessed and understood both the risks and opportunities associated with with sustainability and sustainable finance. I think it's also quite important to think through the sustainable change that you want to drive and, and try to be quite focused, I'd suggest. So we can't all solve all problems and we're best placed probably to solve some of them, hopefully the bigger ones. So Bella talked about the challenges we've got around housing, around fossil fuel, around agriculture, to name a few. So be thoughtful about, you know, how can we start to drive change specifically in their sectors? And I think it's just really, really important to, to create and further develop the frameworks and the products that are in place that are going to drive greater flows of capital into projects that support us in ensuring a greener and more equitable planet. I think that's uh, absolutely right. Now, um, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. Um, Emily, Bella, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. Um, it's been wonderful to hear from you, and I look forward to hearing more from Emily in September. Uh, thanks also to you for listening to today's edition. Now, we've got quite a back catalogue of interviews and panel discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast channel. And you can check them out by searching for Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or a comment. We love to receive your feedback. To learn more about the Just Transition and about Guernsey's sustainable finance offerings, you can now register to come to Guernsey for our Sustainable Finance Week that's being held in Guernsey between the 19th and 23rd of September. We'll be hosting market-leading keynote speakers, informative panel sessions, and there'll be an opportunity to network with global and Guernsey-leading sustainable finance practitioners. You can also find us at guernseygreenfinance.org and we are guernsey.com and you can interact with us on Twitter at GSY Green Finance and at We Are Guernsey. To hear more relating to news and developments coming out of Guernsey's finance industry, check out the We Are Guernsey podcast on your preferred platform. We'll also have links to Emily, Bella and Baringa's social media in our show notes, as well as the new research report. So check them out to hear more. And we'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcast.